we're seeing a lot of like attackers shifting from trying to make you sign malicious transaction to actually send you some stuff to make you interact with malicious components. It can be, you know, an airdrop to your wallet that includes some malicious code. It can be a transaction like a, what is called address poisoning, you know, like poisoning your wallet with different addresses. Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. We've never run a breaking news Chiron across an episode of Public Key, but when I was recording this episode, the Web3 industry was on full alert due to a ledger supply chain attack. Fortunately for you, I was interviewing a security expert named Roz Niv, who is the co-founder and CTO at Blockade. This conversation took place on the 14th of December, 2023. That morning, Web3 users around the world woke up to news that their funds might be at risk due to a vulnerability that was introduced into hundreds of decentralized apps using the Ledger Connect software. Roz's company, Blockade, was the first to break the news, and we spent much of the episode talking about the attack as it was unfolding. But we also get to talk about what Blockade does and why Roz and his co-founders started the company. Their mission is to provide security tools for Web3 builders and protect users from malicious dApps, wallet drainers, address poisoning, and suspicious transactions. And even though the company's just recently launched from Stealth, they've struck partnerships with major players in the ecosystem like MetaMask and OpenSea. Hey, and before you jump into the episode, if you wanna hear more about Web3 security and combating illicit activity on the blockchain, then you definitely must attend the Chainalysis Links Conference. We're coming back to New York City, April 9th and 10th. We've got a terrific lineup of speakers to cover a range of topics, including everything from security to illicit finance. And if you buy your ticket, as soon as you finish this episode, you'll get a discount before prices increase. As always, the link to register can be found in the show notes. Today I'm joined by the co-founder and CTO of a new exciting company called Blockade, Roz Niv. Roz, welcome to the program. Hey, hey, Ian, thank you for uh, having me. Excited to be here. Well, your company is working on what I view as the number one problem in Web3, which is security around the user experience. At Chainalysis, we, we monitor closely all the scams that are out there. We see the dollars that unfortunately are going directly from end user wallets into phishing and hacks and wallet drainers. And it's incredible. I mean, the dollars are massive, but the number of victims is, is really, it's just daunting. And I personally can't see ecosystem moving forward if we can't get a handle on this. So for people that haven't heard of Blockade, maybe we can start just an overview of like, what is the product that you're building? What can it offer to people? In Blockade, we provide security tools to Web3 builders in order to stop malicious transactions or malicious connections, protecting users from scam, phishing, hacks. So far, we've been fortunate to work, you know, with uh, some ecosystem giants such as MetaMask, Zerion, Rainbow, OpenSea. Those are massive companies. I, I would guess that almost everyone in Web3 is using MetaMask, at least as, as one of maybe a few wallets they use. It's certainly a primary wallet for most people I talk to uh, who are doing anything in the, the kind of EVM ecosystem. What's your relationship with MetaMask? Like, what are, what is the solution that you're actually providing there? Like, what would I experience as an end user maybe with uh, using MetaMask? So I think as a user, you will get an experience that is very much similar to a non-HTTPS site on a regular browser. Basically, what we want to do is to indicate to the user that um, the transaction they're about to sign at the moment or the DAP they are um, about to connect to uh, will be a malicious one. So from the user perspective, you know, as soon as I'm connected, connecting to a DAP, if this one is flagged as malicious by blockade by our attack, you will get an indication of, 
hey, this is a malicious site, you might not want to proceed through. Then on the transaction phase, so whenever you will be prompted to sign a transaction, we will help your wallet to, uh, first of all, explain it to you, making sure you understand exactly what are the technical implications of this transaction. Secondly, even more important, you know, giving you some indications of whether this transaction imposes you to any sort of risk. So I think, for example, we can help you understand that this transaction is an approval, but more precisely, we can help you to understand that the spender that you're about to approve your funds to is a malicious one. Yeah, I think that last point you made there that you're actually helping the user understand what it is that they're signing is so critical because often it's really opaque. I mean, my experience, every time I hit approve inside of MetaMask, I sweat a little bit, right? Because you, you're never quite clear what the contract is, is doing and what you're actually approving by signing it, which I've never really understood how we ended up in that, in that position in kind of a Web3 world. So I'm grateful that you're working on this. If I've got the latest version of MetaMask on my phone, is Blockade already there? Or do I need to take some action as a user to add that capability? Yeah, so Blockade is there. Um, you should just enable it on your settings. I'm on the experimental settings. And very soon, we're going to be on my default. And it's not just MetaMask. So people that are using Rainbow Wallet, which I think is pretty popular in the Solana ecosystem, the Zerion Wallet, similar setup with all of those as well. Yeah, exactly. 100%. We're helping these wallets and more that we'll be able to announce soon. I'd love to hear about your background. Like so many, I think, security experts, you've come through the Israeli Defense Forces experience. Of all the things in security, what led you to this place of Web3 and, and kind of brought you into the, the world of protecting unsuspecting crypto users? So Ido, my co-founder and myself, uh, we were lucky, you know, to uh, serve in uh, the Israeli cyber intelligence units, both in A200 and the prime minister's office. So we actually met there the first day of our army service. A couple of more other folks have been with us on this exact same day as well. And when you're handling like real operations, so, you know, th there is a lot to do in regards of like, you know, making sure you have access to the relevant networks. And but I think when you're looking on like a, a broader thing, such as like open source intelligence, or even like trace of funds. So blockchains and crypto is like a, a something that is heard often on these operations because unfortunately, as you know better than us, I guess, a lot of these organizations are using blockchains as their infrastructure. So I guess um, this was not the first time where Ido and I heard about blockchains. Like for me, I, I already heard about it uh, during high school when I did my first degree in applied maths. There were a lot of nerds talking about blockchains. Right after the army, Ido and I knew we're going to start a company in blockchains in Web3. We were fascinated by the technology but also by the potential that this ecosystem has. And we started to look for problems. Now, funny enough, we, we didn't know that we're going to solve security. We just looked for general problems to solve. And we always had this joke, you know, of like, uh, so there are a lot of people that are like uh, uh, finishing their army service from these places and they were open like a cybersecurity cloud company. So we always had this joke on this alumni list of like, hey, we're yet another cloud cybersecurity company. <laughs> But please join us because we have like, a, you know, these great VCs and these ninja uh, engineers. And then, you know, when we looked on problems in Web3, like the first thing that hits us in the face was security. You know, how is different from regular security uh, infrastructure? What is done pre-production? What is done post-production? What is done manually? What is a service? What is a product? And we're both pretty technical. So we started to dive into it and uh, yeah, started blocking it. Such an amazing story. We've, we've had a few founders with similar backgrounds who were lucky enough to work in 8200 or, or some of the other branches of the Defense Forces. 
And uh, it's amazing to me the talent and expertise and you know great companies that are coming out of out of that experience. So I was reading one of your blogs. I think the launch blog actually had this quote. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. But you made the point that one in ten DAPs are malicious. First, I'm curious, like, how do you collect the data to figure that out? I assume this is part of the back end of Blockade. But I, w- I was also wondering, what's the trend line on that, if you have any insight? Is that going up or down as we think uh, over time? I think this is something that we're seeing on every integration. So like every new wallet or every new DAP or marketplace we're start, starting to work with. So we're seeing on their traffic, you know, around 10% of malicious DAPs or like a malicious transactions. The way we're able to get this information is both via the data we're getting from the customer. So for example, a wallet is not like a wallet user is now connecting to a site. This site is sent to us. We're able to scan it in real time. And yeah, we're seeing, of course, like a massive decrease as soon as uh, we're starting to work with them. But I guess this stat of like, uh, you know, on the initial integration, when we're starting, we're seeing around 10% of the site uh, that users are uh, browsing into specifically on consumer wallets. It's just like a, a constant thing. It's incredible. Do you get any data about the origination of these malicious sites? Like one of the things that we've noticed in research here at Chainalysis is about 75% of ransomware payments accrue back to actors that are operating out of Russia. So you can kind of like categorize ransomware broadly as being like a Russian national driven category of cybersecurity or security issues. Is there a similar nexus here when it comes to these malicious dApps or is it more widespread? Actually, one of the things we're doing at Blockade, rather than, you know, just like uh, improving our detection engine, is to track and follow these uh, attack groups. So basically, we're gathering information in regards of like, you know, the signatures of different wallet drainers, both on-chain, you know, the contracts, the addresses, the bytecodes they are using, but also on the Web2 sides of things, you know, like the, the, the sites they are using, the infrastructure they are using, where they are hosting their sites. And... I think you can see a variety of different types of actors. One of these is, as you mentioned, are, you know, these these like nation state attackers that are related with, with the country mentioned and other countries as well. And you can see they have a much more organized infrastructure and their attacks are very targeted, very aimed to institutional users. But also on the other hand, you know, we're seeing a lot of like groups of like, uh, whether these are like script kiddies or more of like scam as a service type of infrastructure. So actually we're seeing someone that is developing like a wallet drainer and then they, they're selling these wallet drainers to other. And you can see actually like a rev share done on chain. So like using yeah. their contracts, they are giving you 80% of the profits, 80% of the funds that were drained from the user and the rest 20% are going to, to them, to the infrastructure builders. So we're seeing, you know, different sorts and types of groups starting from like script kiddies to like a more of like organized development groups to, you know, these nation state attackers. Yeah, we've seen the similar category of the as a service offering where it's like, here's a complete toolkit. You get contracts, you get a website template, you get some domain hosting services like Go, which is just, it's wild to me. It gives me the sense that it's very hard to think about stopping these malicious apps from getting deployed, right? Because the ability to, to scale this out horizontally at relatively low cost just means that anybody looking to make a quick dollar off people, unfortunately, can stand one of these up. It doesn't require a high bar of technical difficulty. So you're going to have lots of people coming after it, right? Yeah, I think I think all in all, it's like it's an economical play where, you know, attackers will keep doing it as long as it is profitable for them. For an attacker, you know, to like dispatch a new domain um, and just use the same infrastructure, 
is something that is very easy. This is why, by the way, the usage of deny lists or like statically comparing domains or statically comparing addresses is not good enough because for attackers, it's very easy to move their funds to another address or another contract or to host their domain on another domain. But if you're actually looking on their patterns, uh, you might make it much more harder for them. But I guess, yeah, for your point, yeah, it's very easy. You know, these things are built as like a service. Just type here the address you want the funds to get into and we'll do the rest for you. So now this kind of brings me around to like, well, how does Blockade actually work? How can you possibly keep on top of this ever expanding, you know, list of malicious apps? What does the backend architecture actually look like? Yeah, I think when we're talking about data sources that are relevant in order to train our engine and to keep it, you know, being able to handle the greatest and latest type of attacks, we're looking on mainly three data sources, uh, which are on-chain. So we have a very uh, heavy on-chain uh, infrastructure that we build to index like, you know, on-chain activities. We have a lot of components on the off-chain side of things. So, you know, like living on the wallets, you know, you're, you're seeing both the domain, the web two elements of the interaction, but you're also seeing the web three ones. So this is the second one that we're looking into a lot. So for example, you know, signing these uh, SDKs and trainers of these attackers, their different network operations, um, their anti-debug techniques, their obfuscations, their evasions. So this is the second data source. And I guess the third one is data that we're able to see from our integrations. So as I, I mentioned before, you know, like being able to get this data from different integrations to see all the different applications that are uh, listed on OpenSea, to see specific trends of, you know, like consumers go into different dApps just gives us a better idea of you know what is happening at the moment um, and where the attacks uh, are taking place i think even just now before recording this show so like uh, we we're in the middle of an attack that was take place i think it's public now uh, a lot of people talked about it on twitter but um you know ledger connect wallet sdk was compromised using a supply chain attack. We were the, the first one actually to publish uh, a message in regards of it. And we've seen, you know, a malicious transaction transmitted from one of like, there were a lot of like uh, very known sites. For, so for example, hey.xyz of the Lens protocol. So like someone just uh, contacted us and said, hey, why is hey.xyz is flagged as malicious? This is, might be a false positive. And then like we had a researcher from the other room said, no, no, it's like a, an ongoing attack. And now we know like, uh, everyone are, are panicked but yeah we were able to actually like get this from our data from our engine without any human in the loop which is very cool that's incredible so that gives you the machine side of of being able to scale to you know effectively an unlimited number of these malicious dApps being deployed talk more about what's going on with ledger so you said there's a supply chain attack that is affecting ledger devices so if i if i use their hardware wallet and I've, i would assume updated it to the latest version i've mistakenly installed some malicious code is that is that what's going on so not exactly this attack uh, has nothing to do with the actual ledger device and, and the ledger wallet i think what is done is basically ledger has a model to embed on that so similar to how uh, metamask has a model for anyone to connect and like other wallets so like also Ledger have their own code that is enabling an integration with Ledger. But, you know, on this attack, like the presence of this code was the problematic thing because we believe, you know, there was a supply chain attack and the library, the NPM package was actually compromised. An attacker was able to inject a wallet draining code 
into this package and then taking advantage of the majority of the dApps in the ecosystem are importing this uh, package. And then, you know, they're just like have freeway inside this very known dApps. So there's nothing to do uh, uh, with the usage of, of like a ledger wallet. It's just like the presence of this code in any application. It's basically influences any wallet that interacts with this site, not only ledger. That sounds incredibly frightening. For people listening, if you've got a hardware ledger device, you're fine, but you probably shouldn't be authorizing any new dApp until there's a resolution to this issue because any dApp, even on a legitimate site you've interacted with previously, they could have implemented this malicious code just by updating to the latest version of, of Ledger unknowingly, accidentally. And if you then authorize that contract by connecting your wallet, you risk having your funds drained. Is that correct? Yeah, or just use a uh, wallet that uses Blockade and you'll be fine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Do you guys have an implementation with, with uh, Ledger yet with the hardware wallets or are you working on it? So at the moment, we can talk about the, the wallets I, uh, I mentioned earlier, which are like MetaMask, Zerion, Rainbow, and OpenSea. Yeah. There we go. All right. So the, the hardware ones hopefully are coming in the near future. One of the other statistics that I pulled out of, of, uh, of one of your blogs, uh, it was kind of a position that Web3 is broken, primarily because the fund loss per capita exceeds any other industry. And this actually was a, a kind of a mind-blowing stat. Like I spent all day long looking at you know, loss in, in crypto. We do a lot of analysis on this in our research, but I hadn't really contextualized it in that way. For a relatively small industry, we're far exceeding any other category. Do you think as blockade becomes more widely adopted, like this is the solution, just kind of intercepting at the transaction or, or DAP authorization level, does that solve the majority of that loss that you're seeing? Yes. So I tell you how I look on things on the ecosystem and why the ratio is so high, as you yeah. mentioned. So I think, you know, coming from a regular traditional security industry, when you're looking on attacks, uh, whether these are like data breaches or code execution on uh, different infrastructures, at the end, let's assume you're like a country that wants to make money out of uh, cybercrime. So being able to do it on a regular uh, cybersecurity industry, you know, you have a lot of hops in the way in order to actually be profitable. So you need to create an access to a relevant network to tunnel your data in there, to have an operation going there, to get the relevant data, to get this data out, maybe then sell this data, or I don't know, or maybe use this data as credentials to other systems that are enabling you at the end to have assets or to gain any asset value from it. When you're looking on our infrastructure, the actual exploitation results in the attacker gaining an immediate gain from it. And I think this is why so many people and specifically, you know, like nation state attackers are uh, enjoying this ecosystem and the fact that like you need to find a vulnerability and to exploit it, but rather than this, uh, or, or I don't know, or to scam a user, but then you have, you know, something profitable in your end. So like uh, this chain of like gaining value from an exploitation from a scam is something that is like a very short on our ecosystem. Now, to your question in regards of whether a transaction level or a domain level interception solution is uh, the final solution to this problem in our ecosystem, yes. So basically transactions are code that is being executed, right? Very similar to how on a modern operating system like uh, or on a modern personal computer, you know, when you press a file, it just loads to your computer and it ran. And, you know, like, I believe every file that is uh, loaded to like uh, uh, an important computer is go through a list of inspections, whether it is statical scans uh, on the disk, whether these are like scans that are going through uh, uh, on the loading time, whether these are scans that are done on running time of the actual application. And I guess here it's very similar, you know, like uh, 
we call it transacting, but we're actually executing code. And this code is actually what holds our assets. So I see no difference in the aspect of whenever a code is executed, we must scan it and make sure, um, you know, there's nothing harmful of it. Whether this code is emanating from a wallet, going through a DAP, or running inside of a smart contract, a code that is run should be validated and it should be validated in many layers. And this is exactly what we're aiming to. How do you think about some of the custody solutions? Like I think about Fireblocks as an example, or Paxos or BitGo, where, you know, obviously MetaMask is more of an end user retail solution, but I would have to imagine that what you're building ultimately should end up in, in some of those more institutional wallet management software as well. Yeah, so this is a really good question. I can say we are working with uh, some institutional wallets, just can expose them at the moment. And I think, yeah, the protection there is very similar from like a, a user experience perspective. It is also embedded into the flow of the wallet connecting to dApps or, or transacting. But I guess the, the attacks there are very more tailor-made and specific for uh, specific users, you know, like instead of just like spray and pray different domains, these attacks that, that we're seeing there are more very much, uh, you know, targeted to specific users, making sure um, that the IP that is connecting to them is the IP of the specific victim that they, they want to attack. And yeah, I think these wallets are all exposed to the same risks as MetaMask or other consumer wallets are exposed to. It's very important, you know, to first of all, understand that they are exposed to it, but, but secondly, to understand that these attacks are different and requires different models and, and algorithmical ways to, to solve them. How about some of the MPC wallets? Like Coinbase, you know, introduced, I think, kind of a novel solution. And I've now seen other providers come out with a similar architecture where I self-custody the funds, I control the wallet. But if I were to lose my private key for some reason, my phone gets stolen, say, I can go back to Coinbase and they can actually help me affect a recovery. So it's not quite the despair that one might have if they were using solely MetaMask on their phone where there, there's really no, no recovery path there. Does Blockade have a role to play? in that kind of MPC wallet architecture? Yeah, so I think MPC is like a great thing for the ecosystem. It basically enables uh, users to not only rely on their secret phrase, among other things it is enabled. I think th the way we like to look on, on, on this like user stack in the modern blockchain environment is you have the first layer, which is a wallet. This wallet can be an MPC wallet. And I think also it aligns with the type of scams and fraudulent activities and like uh, exploitation we've seen in the ecosystem. So I think like looking five to 10 years ago, there were a lot of attacks around like exchanges that got hacks, you know, like key got compromised then led to user fund to get lost. And I think MPC uh, is a really good solution uh, to these types of, of breaches and is really great for, for the ecosystem. And I think this is one of the main reasons we're seeing more and more wallets uh, embedding this solution. But I guess on top of this layer, on top of this, like we like to call it an access layer, you know, you have a wallet, you're able to, you are now accessible to the chain, you're able to sign things and, and you're also able to split the sign among, like split the signature process among different variants. You mentioned like social recovery, uh, among other things. But I guess the layer on top of it, the data layer, the application layer, this is something that is not the expertise of a wallet to solve, you know, because we talked about them giving you a nice access to the chain and also a way to have more complicated signature flows. But I guess to have this expertise of data and to being able to, to observe so many data, which some of it prevalent to specific wallets and protect users from, okay, so I'm able to sign and I'm able to be the only one that is able of signing, but what, what am I signing on? You know, is what I'm signing is risky? Should I go on and proceed? 
And this is the second layer and exactly uh, what we're aiming to solve is Bucket. I'm curious, did you ever consider building your own wallet? Yeah, I think it's not something we aim to do uh, in the near term. I think it's a different type of company. It's a different DNA. And we're we're the complementary part of the wallet, right? One of the interesting attacks in, in the last year, you actually mentioned it in one of your blogs, was when Vitalik's Twitter account got hacked and the attacker posted a link uh, encouraging people to go visit visit a site to mint the future, I think was the tagline in the in the tweet. But obviously it was it was a uh, it was a malicious site. Talk about how your technology would pick something up like that because I get the sense that you're you're detecting these malicious dapps upstream of users actually being impacted and funds being lost potentially. Like how how does that actually play out in a case like the the Vitalik attack? Just to give some context around this attack, so Talik Twitter account was hacked and was used in order to publish a group of different wallet drainers. A lot of people, of course, trusting Vitalik, went in these sites and started to sign different transactions that resulted in a major loss of assets from them. As Blockade, we were able to detect the exact same group of sites more than 24 hours before they were even published or uh, the first user even connected to them. And the way we're able of doing it, it is because, so we talked before us having like a three different data sources. I think on this case, we're able to, so we're scanning the entire internet, looking for threats, and then we're able to extract transactions from these sites without requiring users to actually go into them. So basically, you know, we're simulating the sites on our side and are able to extract all the possible transactions. These are not real transactions. They're just like a tra- transactions that are suggested to a user that is connected to the site. So we're taking these transactions and evaluate them. Also, we're looking on like the SDK that was used is an SDK we're very much familiar with from other types of attacks. So we're able to basically indicate, you know, all the wallets that are working with us and mitigate it on our engine. So every wallet that went through these sites was protected both on the domain level while connecting to these sites, but also on the transaction level while transacting. Is that typical? Like as new malicious dApps are being launched, that automated protection is happening in the background before even the first funds are being stolen. You're able to to block those transactions, warn users if they come in, in contact with the dApp? Yeah, so this is something that is constantly done by our backends. Um, we're also combining this with the data that we're seeing via the different integrations we have. So for example, let's assume, you know, we scanned a site and it was flagged to be benign, but then we're seeing a transaction that is originated from this site and it is a malicious one. It is automatically prompted, you know, for us to check whether there is a front end that is compromised, similar to like what happened with Ledger today. It's a combination of these things, but we're aiming to basically indicate the user before even connecting to the site there is uh, a malicious activity uh, that is related with it. We want to indicate a user as soon as possible on their flow um, that there's something malicious going on. Yeah. I'm curious about another topic. I imagine people listening here going, wow, this sounds amazing. We need something like this. But you're also collecting a lot of data. And I know that many people who are using cryptocurrency are, are privacy conscious right? They don't want information about places they're connecting to or funds that they're sending being shared. In a lot of cases, I think the reason why they're using cryptocurrency at all is, is that privacy layer. What should people know about how you're collecting like usage data from individual wallets? Yeah, so this is a great question. I think, you know, what we're doing is very similar to how a node provider behaves. So basically, as a user that, that uses a wallet, like there is no, there are no external data that is sent that is not sent to a node. So basically, yeah. um, you have the same level of privacy 
of using a node provider. So for people not familiar, like a, a node provider, say someone like Alchemy, you're, you're going to be sending a transaction, which ultimately ends up on chain. So it's public data anyway, but you're not giving up things like your IP address or your physical location or browsing history from the, the built-in browser in the wallet or something like that. None of that data ends up with blockade. Exactly. We like to say that like node providers are similar to the cloud infrastructure of like a blockchains. That's great. When you look across the, the security landscape, I mean, we, we've obviously paid particular attention to hacks of DeFi protocols. Not all of these are malicious transaction related, right? There's been things like private key compromise that we saw in the Axie Infinity Ronin Bridge hack last year. Uh, we've seen things like Badger Dow suffered an attack that was really Web2 related. I think where their Cloudflare, you know, the provider of their CDN network Network was compromised and that allowed people to manipulate code on the, the front end to the Badger DAO site. And then obviously we see things like flash loan attacks. Are those on the roadmap? Are they ever in scope for blockade? Or do you see those as like another category of problem that, that other tools are more appropriate to solve? Yeah. So I think, you know, you mentioned like the Ronin hack yeah. key compromised, but the cool thing is they were also, they also resulted in a transaction that's sent on chain. Now, whether these transactions should be scanned on the wallet level or on the protocol level, on the smart contract level, you know, it's an implementation detail, but it is all a result of a transaction that is sent. On the Badger DAO example that you gave, which is like a case that we're resolving even today, you know, the front end was actually hacked and, and the incident was really more on the web two area of things, but it also resulted on users transacting a malicious transaction. So it could have been prevented on the transaction level. I guess the common thing that all of these attacks have is that eventually in order to, you know, to actually trigger the exploit, they require transactions to be sent. And if you're able to scan this transaction, it can be done on, on different layers. So you will be able to prevent them. So I guess like it's similar to how on like a credit card company, you know, a key can be stolen, but the, the final result would be a transaction that is made. So if you're able to analyze this transaction and indicate, hey, this transaction is like a, behaves differently from what I know, you'll be able to also stop it. So I guess it's it's similar here, you know, everything results in a transaction. And if you're able to stop this transaction and to scan it on the relevant place, you'll be able to, you know, just like prevent this attack, whether it was a result of like more of like keys that got compromised, uh, front end that was compromised, etc. Amazing. When I look across the, the crypto ecosystem, you know, we've seen obviously a rise of DeFi platforms in terms of transaction volume over the last few years. But there's still, I would say, a significant portion of people that really only interact with some of the more centralized platforms like exchanges. How do you think about that layer of the ecosystem? Like, is there a product that you develop potentially for exchanges to be monitoring their infrastructure or is that out of scope? So I think anyone that is, um, you know, transacting or have any form of transacting, we can help to them, whether it yeah. is, you know, an actual Web3 transaction or a DeFi transaction or, you know, just like a transfer of funds. But basically, you know, we're aiming to help anyone that is transacting or even receiving funds. So, for example, like we haven't we haven't talked about it, but also like we're seeing a lot of like attackers shifting from trying to make you sign malicious transaction to actually send you some stuff to make you interact with malicious uh, components. It can be, you know, an airdrop to your wallet that uh, uh, includes some malicious code. It can be a transaction like a, what is called address poisoning, you know, like poisoning your wallet with different addresses. So I guess exchanges are also exposed to this. So anyone that has any form of sending or receiving transaction can gain from integrating with Blockade. 
Talk more about that address poisoning attack. This is a flavor of cyber attack that I don't think gets talked about as much, but seems very, very dangerous. This attack is included on a new attack vector that we're calling incoming transactions. So, you know, up until now, attackers try to just like straightforward uh, getting a, trans- a malicious transaction to be signed by a victim, whether these are uh, from a front end that is compromised or from a side that is impersonating another side, just like, uh, you know, like implementing another on-chain mechanism to, to, to get the funds to. And I guess we're seeing some sort of a shift into sending you transactions. And this new vector also includes attackers that are trying to send you transactions from addresses that are look similar to other addresses on your portfolio in order for you to copy these addresses and to interact with them. So, you know, like a lot of indexers and also a lot of wallets are showing you only the first and last four bytes or three bytes of the address. So, you know, for an attacker, it's very easy to create this type of addresses with just like a, a difference in the middle. Attackers are using this fact and trying to get you to, in the end, interact with these types of addresses. Be careful what you click on is is the message or use a wallet that's got blockade, I guess, would be the exactly. uh, the other the other solution here. <laughs> now, excitingly, you, you and your co-founder have recently announced you've raised $33 million. So I would imagine that there's significant growth plans in the future. What's on the horizon as we look out to the next year? What, what should we expect from blockade? At a moment, like we understand exactly what is the problem we're solving. We're understanding the value that we're bringing to our customers. But also we want to make sure that we're able to improve and to detect these latest and greatest types of attacks. I mentioned earlier that like uh, 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 we're seeing what we do similar somehow to like an antivirus on a blockchain environment. And I guess for antivirus to be the best, uh, it should always, you know, have these very fast feedback loops, being able to take this new type of attacks or understanding there are new technologies uh, that should not be flagged as malicious because they're doing some weird stuff. So like there's a lot of work to do in order to improve our detection engine. We're going to also announce a couple of more types of, of integrations and yeah, you know, just keep building um, and protecting as many users as possible. That sounds exciting, Roz. We're going to keep a close eye on the work you're doing at Blockade. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed what you heard today, do me a favor. Open up your podcast app, rate the show, give us a review, and tell us what you liked. Even better, you can share the podcast with your friends. And of course, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Before you go, if you've ever heard a keynote from our CEO, Michael Groninger, then you know him and the rest of the team at Chainalysis believe that blockchains will soon be the world's primary mechanism for the exchange of value, just as the internet has become the primary mechanism for the exchange of information. And our mission here at Chainalysis is to build trust in blockchains. We work every day to set the stage for mass adoption of crypto in a way that gives participants safety and security. But a lot of people wonder, well, how do you actually do that? Well, I've got great news for you. We just published a blog that goes into detail about how we've constructed the world's most robust knowledge graph of blockchain activity. And we've done that so that stakeholders across the public and private sector can see the entities transacting on chain, the activity that those folks are involved in, and the connections between them. To get a better understanding of how Chainalysis works, you can head down to the show notes and check out our full blog.